Psalm 14. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pay careful attention to it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his heritage, his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open this text to us, help us to understand it, and help us to learn more about you through it. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in college, I went to a debate between an atheist and a Christian on the topic of whether we can have morality without God. I've been reading a lot of philosophy at the time, so it was a stimulating and intriguing event. But uh, what I want to draw your attention to isn't particularly the debate itself, but the fact that within 10 years, one of the debate participants had divorced his wife and pleaded guilty to a felony for campaign finance violations. Which one do you think it was? Well... It wasn't the atheist. I I bring this story up at the beginning of my sermon because the text we're going to read is often treated as a text about atheists in the sense of that uh, 3% of the American population, if recent polls are to be believed, who believe that there is no God. But actually, this passage is not just about 3% of our population. Uh, It's about a kind of practical atheism that goes much deeper, one which we need to be on the lookout for as well, even if we are Christians. In fact, we're going to see that Psalm 14 is going to call out all of humanity without exception, not just 3% of us. I, I mentioned last week that these Psalms 11 through 17, which are a group of seven Psalms, unpack details from Psalms 9 through 10. And um, uh, it's also a very negative section. Sorry for that, but we've got another one this, this week. It's a depressing time in David's life when he feels isolated and weak, when he feels forgotten and abandoned by God, and when he feels like he's just surrounded by the wicked on every side. Uh, and so there's a big emphasis on wickedness and evil in the world. The statement from Psalm 10 that this unpacks is Psalm 10:4, where the wicked are said, uh, said about the wicked that all his thoughts are, there is no God. Um, and so this psalm is going to unpack that thought. Uh, as we look at it, I want us to see three points. First, we're going to see what it means to say there is no God. We're going to look at what it, is, what it means to say there is no God. Our second point is going to be 
to see the truth, how the truth that there is, no, that's, well, to see the truth that there is a God and that he is with his people. So point number two, we're going to see that there is a God and that he is with his people. And then third, as we do uh, every time we're preaching on a psalm, we're going to see how Jesus fulfills that psalm. So we're going to see what it means to say that there is no God, the truth that there really is a God who is with his people, and we're going to connect it to Jesus. Okay, first point. What does it mean to say there is no God? Maybe some of you heard that first verse and you thought, whew, I'm off the hook. I believe in God, right? I'm not an atheist, so I can just sit back for this sermon. Not so fast. Uh, first of all, we need to be a little careful not to read our modern context back into the ancient text. Uh, today, atheism is a thing. I said only about 3% of the American population, or about 7% if you add in agnostics as well. Um, there are best-selling books like The God Delusion. Um, but this sort of atheism isn't super common in the ancient world. There don't seem to be as many people running around arguing that there are no gods, in the sense that no gods exist. What we do find a lot more evidence of is people saying that while there may be gods, they don't really care about what we do, or they don't intervene in our world. And that seems to be more what we've got going on here. And the, the, one of the ways we can see that is if we go back to Psalm 10, uh, where we saw in verse 4 this wicked person who says, who all his thoughts are, there is no God. Uh, but then we go on to verse 11, we see the same wicked person saying, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will never see. So on the one hand you have there is no God, but then also God has forgotten and doesn't see. The idea seems to be more that God is, uh, God is absent than that there simply is no supernatural forces in the world. Uh, the idea is that even if there is a God, he will not pay attention and he will not act. Um, so there is no God might mean something more like there is no God here, right? Like if I, in the morning I, I say to my, my roommates, there, there is no milk. I don't mean that I don't believe in milk but there's, there's no milk in the fridge. There's no milk available. God might exist, but he's nowhere to be found right now. There's a second reason, too, to think, though, that this psalm doesn't let us off the hook if we're not part of that 3% of professing atheists. Um, to see that, we have to keep reading. Uh, as we keep reading through verse 1, we find, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. Wait, what, what was that? None who does good. Uh, let's keep reading. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Is that, is that clear? Did you, did you get the message there? Yeah, the psalmist has this picture of God peering down out of heaven, uh, looking through all the sons of man, searching out to see if he can find just one wise man who seeks God. And he finds exactly none. Not one. Now, of course, there are scholars who will tell you that this is hyperbole here. Um, surely David isn't saying that nobody at all, not one human being, does good. 
Um, he must be just talking about unbelievers or something and being a little bit hyperbolic. But I think it's difficult to say, it would be difficult to say with more clarity and emphasis than this text does actually say um, that there is no one who does good. And what's more, this interpretation lines up with other scripture passages. Um, I read uh, from, uh, I didn't read, I, I picked uh, and uh, John read for us the passage from Genesis 9, uh, or Genesis 6, where we see um, the perversity of humanity after the fall. Uh, we learn that all of their thoughts are, uh, are violence and wickedness, and God, so much so that God regrets making them, we're told. And then uh, Solomon in 1 Kings 8.46, when he's giving the prayer at the dedication of the temple, says that there is no one who does not sin. Uh, the preacher in Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is no righteous one on earth who does good and does not sin. And then, of course, uh, the kicker is that the Apostle Paul quotes this very psalm. Psalm 14 that we're reading today, and we saw that in the other scripture reading from the New Testament. He quotes it in Romans uh, there to say that everybody, Gentile as well as Jew, is under God's judgment. So that seems to be how the Apostle Paul reads this passage, as showing us that all human beings stand before God's judgment throne uh, by nature as guilty. Now, there are two doctrinal terms that we might associate with this scriptural teaching uh, that can help us get a handle on it and what it means. The first is original sin. Uh, original sin refers to the story in Genesis. Children, do you know this story? The story about Adam and Eve and how Adam ate the fruit, right? And God told him not to eat it. And through that eating of the fruit, sin comes into the world. Paul tells us in Romans 5.12 that sin came into the world through one man. And in 1 Corinthians 15.22, he says that we all die in Adam. Since Adam is the covenant head of the whole human race, his sin doesn't just have a significance for him, rather his sin affects us all. With Adam's sin, sin enters into the world, and we all become sinful in him. And that means that sin isn't first and foremost something you choose. It's something you are born into. Um, it is a wonderful sentimental thought, isn't it, of, of children as pure, innocent little angels. Uh, it's a wonderful sentimental thought for people who haven't really spent any time with them. Um, I, I don't know, maybe those of you who are at junior camp uh, can, can attest. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw a child breaking a rule or, 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 or being prideful or stubborn or getting angry, perhaps. Um, but uh, no, according to Scripture, all of us are born with this sin nature. Before we're able, able even to choose something, we already have this original sin built in through Adam. Um, and this passage might even make a reference to that fact. Uh, the phrase children of man in verse 2, um, the, word, it, the word for man there is the Hebrew word Adam, uh, which is Adam's name, right? Adam is just named man. Um, because of Adam, uh, and so, you know, so maybe that, that, that's a reference to the fact that all of these children of Adam are like Adam. None of them do good. Because of Adam, we're not just good people who maybe make a mistake sometimes, but we are sinful in our very nature. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Reformed theology adds another little emphasis to this theme. 
And that's the doctrine of total depravity. What, now, what does total depravity mean? Um, it doesn't mean total in the sense that we are as sinf- each as sinful as we could possibly be, right? We're not all serial killers, and that's a good thing for society. It's God's blessing. Rather, our depravity is total in the sense that it infects every single part of us. Uh, there's no part of human nature that is free from sin. Our sin infects everything about who we are and everything that we do. Uh, and so we don't just, it's not just that we commit a sin once in a while. Um, rather, our whole life has become sinful. And that's where our sins come from. As our psalm says, there is no one who does good. Everyone is corrupted by sin through and through. Um, Now, that's a bit of a hard doctrine, isn't it? Um, First of all, perhaps this sounds kind of like an arrogant thing to say to you. Isn't this just some Christians telling the whole world how messed up they are? Um, What gives us the right? And isn't this just an exaggeration, anyway? I mean, sure, there is evil in the world. There are some really evil people. And nobody is perfect. I think most of us would admit that. But aren't most people pretty good? Is this doctrine just the negativity of some grumpy, glasses-half-empty, dour Calvinist? Guilty as charged. But leaving that aside... I don't have time here for a complete defense of the doctrine of total depravity today, but much less original sin. I mean, there's a lot of questions that we could ask about that. Um, But let me just suggest one reason for thinking that it might not be such a crazy idea as it first appears, and that that reason is an observation from history. Um, If you look back through history, uh, you discover many forms of injustice and evil that seem obviously wrong to us today. Uh, And it's not just occasional individuals either, um, but you find whole societies normalizing these sorts of things. Uh, Wars fought purely for the the purpose of conquest, invasion, and theft of land. Um, Religious inquisitions, brutal child labor practices, and probably one of the worst examples we're aware of, the African slave trade and the institution of slavery. Um, One of the things you notice if you study these historical episodes, is that the people who participated in them found ways that they could still think of themselves as good. They found ways of justifying themselves. Or even, they could be thought of as excellent people in their time and place. In fact, it's actually kind of difficult to study any period of history and not discover these sorts of details. You learn that there is this deep human capacity for denial about how evil we really are. Now, one can draw two possible conclusions from this. Um, Either one can conclude that people from long ago were really, really bad, but we have moved beyond it, and we live in the first basically good society in human history. That's, That's one possible conclusion you could draw. Alternatively, one could conclude that it is more likely that we are guilty of deep evil as well and that we just can't see it because we have our cultural blinders on. Uh, At the very least, a consideration of the human capacity for denial of our own evil should give us pause before we take at first value an intuition that most of us are basically good. 
Perhaps the truly prideful position would be to insist that we are the ones who are truly good, better than all the people at different times and places uh, whose evil we can clearly see. Um, well, that's just one consideration that might help make this doctrine more plausible to you. I don't know if you find it convincing, but I do know that what we find here in God's Word is God's evaluation. It's His judgment spoken over your life. One of the most important acts of faith is to accept God's Word on our life, to accept the truth of His judgment, even if we don't always understand why it is true. However, I suspect that there are many of us here today who have learned some of the truth of this doctrine by experience. Maybe for you, in the process of becoming a Christian, God opened your eyes to things in your life which you have been making excuses for, and you came to see those things as sinful and evil. Or perhaps, as you grew in your Christian walk, you have had moments where God showed you the ugliness that was in your heart, ugliness that you had no idea was there before. Um, part of growing in the Christian life is growing in the, our knowledge of the depths of our own sin. Um, God's Word is ultimately the good news of His gospel of salvation to us, but in order for God's Word to be good news to us, it also has to be the bad news about how desperately we need saving. We need to learn the desperate wickedness of our own hearts so that we can be driven to call out to God to be forgiven. Um, one of my first experiences with this was, was as a child. Uh, my, an experience where it's one of the first things I associate with growing in the Christian faith. And it was discovering something in my heart that I'd been making excuses for. Um, when I first came to this country, I didn't necessarily receive a strong welcome in the class which I came to. And as a, as a child, um, I turned that into a reflection upon America. Um, and it took me a while to phrase it in these terms, but I genuinely hated America and Americans. Because I had been in England and I, I came to America, I got a bad reception, and I reacted to that with hate. One of the first moments of growth I remember as a Christian um, was realizing that that was hate and that it was wrong. Looking at my heart and saying, no, just because some people sinned against me doesn't at all justify the vileness and extremity of this hate that I'm holding inside my heart. And I had to confess my sin to God and let go of it. And I think many of us have had, that, had those moments and continue to have those moments as we grow in Christ. Moments where we see inside ourselves, wow, something that I was give, making up reasons for and explaining why it was reasonable and justified or just a little thing is actually something big and something massive inside myself. So how, how, how should we apply this point to ourselves this morning? How can you apply it? We've seen that this isn't just a passage about atheists. It's rather about a practical atheism which is in all of us by nature. It's about the ways in which we live as if God was absent. The ways in which we turn aside and become corrupt. So let me ask you this morning. Where are the areas in your life where you are living as if God was absent? 
Where are the areas where you have turned aside from seeking after God? Are you willing to accept that that darkness exists not just in other people, but in your own heart? Are you willing to accept God's declaration about who you are by nature, that no one does good, not even one? Maybe there's a sin in your life that you're in denial about. Perhaps you're tempted to play down its seriousness and make excuses for it. Maybe it's something that's easy to hide, a secret lust or a hatred that you're feeding in your heart, even if you aren't acting on it outwardly. Perhaps you think, yes, I have, I have some failings in this area, but I'm basically a good person, so I'm not going to worry about it too much. Here's a good diagnostic tool to see how far you've gone in accepting God's verdict on your life. How do you respond when others confront you about your sin? Do you get angry? Do you get defensive? Or do you listen carefully for the truth of what they have to say? Of course, not everybody who rebukes us does so in a wise or biblical way. Um, But if you know the deceitfulness and the sin that is in your own heart, it should make you willing to listen. It should make you not explode with anger or defensiveness when someone approaches you, even if it turns out that they're wrong. So, is that you today? Are you someone who can be called out for your sin? Uh, Finally, another, another way to think about applying this is how do you feel about your most successful moments? Um, the kind of things that you might put on a college application, you know? Um, volunteers X amount of hours to community service, um, helps out with junior camp, that sort of thing. Are you tempted to magnify that in your mind, right? To build yourself a foundation of your own works, which you can use to challenge God's verdicts, to prove that you really are a good person, Or are you able to see the ways in which even your best works are flawed and marked by sin? To keep from boasting in what you have done, but instead boasting in the God who does such things even through broken vessels. A big part of growing in our walk with God is this practice of bringing this darkness that's in our hearts out into the light. It's coming to accept this truth about who we are by nature. Uh, This passage gives us an opportunity this morning to meditate on this darkness and see the truth of God's verdict about our sinfulness. So I hope you'll take this opportunity to do that this morning. So that's the first point. No one does good. Second point. God is with the righteous. God is with the righteous. Now right, right away you should probably have a question. I don't know if any of you do. Um, Didn't we just say that there's no one who does good? And and everyone has become corrupt. Didn't we say this applies to all the children of Adam, which it should be all of us, right? Um, So then where do these righteous people come from? You know, they just kind of spring up in the text uh, in in, in verse 5. Well, um, the passage doesn't really explain it all here, does it? Um, It just kind of leaves this juxtaposition there between the universal sinfulness of humans and then these righteous people uh, who God is with. Uh, That's okay, though. Other biblical passages can help us work through this tension. Um, 
First of all, we know that righteous doesn't mean always somebody who never sins. Um, the term is often used to describe those who've been made right with God and who are endeavoring to walk in a relationship with Him, even though they often fail. Secondly, we also know that all of these people in the second category of the righteous first belong in the first category of sinful humanity. Right? The children of Israel are also children of Adam. We see how Paul teaches that we are all by nature children of wrath and under God's judgment. Um, Paul was very careful to show that this doesn't just apply to Gentiles. Right? The stuff at the beginning of this passage is not just about those people out there. It applies to Jews as well. It applies to those inside God's covenant community. There's no difference. Jews and Gentiles, believers, insiders, unbelievers outside, all of them stand under the same verdict from God by nature. The difference is that a change has occurred. Those who have put their faith in Jesus have this wrath of God which hangs over their lives dealt with in a definitive way. Because of the verdict of, verdict of righteousness which was spoken over Jesus is spoken over them as well. Uh, and they have a new principle at work within them. They're no longer trapped in their old sinful nature, but they have the Spirit of God at work in them, making them into a new creation. However, at the same time, that doesn't mean that the sin nature is totally gone for Christians, right? The Spirit's work won't be complete until we die or Christ returns. Rather, there's this conflict. There's this war between the Spirit's work of new creation and our sin nature, between what Paul calls the old man and the new man. And believers are still totally depraved, at least in the sense that every aspect of their being and their actions is still marked by sin. Um, it's not that now that we're saved, um, God's salvation means that our, 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 the rest of us is sinful, but our reason is fine. Or you know, everything except for our left toe is sinful. We're still sinful all the way through. Uh, and yet at the same time, there's real change happening. Believers have been brought into God's kingdom. They're placed under Jesus' reign. They're made God's children. And they're being purified and refined according to the pattern of Jesus. Uh, I think it's striking that the Bible always seems to talk about this in a paradoxical way. You know, we have this paradoxical juxtaposition in our passage, but we find the same thing uh, in Paul, right? I mean, he talks about us as having this new nature in Christ. And yet this old nature, which at one place, Paul will say, has been nailed to the cross and is crucified with Christ, is still something that we have to put to death every day. Um, there's this tension in the Christian life between this new reality that in Jesus is being worked into our lives and yet the old reality which is still there. I think in Psalms, uh, this works out in this very stark binary contrast between the wicked and the righteous, Right? Um, we, many psalms have this, this very um, uh, abrupt contrast between these two groups. At the same time, though, there are other psalms that recognize the complexities, right? Psalms of confession, where we recognize that the righteous are still also sinners. Um, so, for the believer, uh, the category of the, wickedness still, the wicked still applies as the old man in them, the old nature which they're seeking to put to death. That's the reason why, as I've been preaching these psalms, I don't know if you've noticed, I, I always uh, call us to see if the way the wicked have been described in the psalm 
is something that applies to us in some way, right? The world isn't just something out there. Um, the world is also in our hearts. And as we read these psalms, we need to be examining ourselves uh, to see how they point out our sin. So all that just to explain what this psalm doesn't explain. That uh, how there can be a group of righteous people, even while everyone falls under this verdict of no one does good. But let's not miss what this passage actually does focus us on. Why is there a group of righteous people? It's because of the action and initiative of God. You see, this passage doesn't only show us the human folly of disbelief in God, disbelief that he hears, that he cares, that he acts. It also shows us the God who is determined to have a people dwell with him. Over against the statement of God's absence, there is no God, we find a statement of God's presence in verse 5. God is with the generation of the righteous. And in verse 6, the Lord is his refuge. Uh, This people is described as righteous, but also poor. They're vulnerable. They're people who the world tries to oppress and to shame. But though the world attacks them, God is a refuge to them. He's a shelter, a fortress that surrounds them on every side. The psalm ends in verse 7 with a statement of faith that God is going to restore the fortunes of his people. Notice this salvation will come out of Zion. Children, do you know where Zion is? What is Zion? That's a word we see in the Bible sometimes. Sometimes you hear it in a hymn, Zion, but where is that? Uh, well, just in case you haven't learned that uh, in Sunday school, um, Zion is another word for the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple is. And so when you see Zion, what should you think about? You should think about God's temple. So then, what does it say when it says salvation comes from Zion? Um, well, it focuses us on God's temple. This building that represents God's choice to dwell with his people, to choose a place where he can place his name so that he can be present with them there in a special way. Uh, Humanity as a whole is marked by this pervasive despair over God's absence, but God has acted to reveal his presence. God isn't just going to let human beings ignore him. He interrupts their denial. Though humans don't seek God, God seeks them out. And he creates a people and a temple that can stand as a sign that he is not absent. So how do we apply the second point to ourselves today? What would it look like if you truly knew God's presence today? If that voice in your heart somewhere that says there is no God was silenced by the voice of God's promise saying, I am with you. Maybe you're someone here this morning who doesn't know if they believe in God or in Jesus or in Christianity. Uh, But you do know that your life is not in order. You feel some of the truth of this verdict that no one does good. If that's you, this passage is an invitation to come to God in faith. God doesn't just pass a verdict on our sinfulness. He also comes near us to provide a way of salvation. So I would urge you, don't delay in coming to Him. Make God your refuge. Join yourself to his people. Bring that darkness in your heart to the only one who's able to deal with it and wash it away. 
And for those of you who are already Christians, who are part of God's people, there's an encouragement for you here today. Uh, In the last sermon point, I asked you to examine yourselves, to take an honest look at the darkness that's in your hearts. But I don't think that's really possible. I don't think we can bear it unless we don't also know the depth of God's love for us. Those two truths kind of go together and build on each other. As we gain a deeper and deeper understanding of how sinful we are, um, we need to be pushed back to see how great God's love and grace is for us. And as we come to learn more about how great God's grace is, uh, it can give us strength and the security we need to bear the full weight of an honest look at our sin. So don't be caught, so caught up in your sins this morning that you don't also see the God who cuts through your darkness to make himself present to you. If you feel the weight of your sin this morning, find refuge in God. You have a sure fortress here. Bring your sin to God. No matter how deep and dark it is, he is able to deal with it. So that's the second point. Although we live so often as if God was absent, he acts to reveal his presence to us. Now for our third point. Let us see how Jesus fulfills this psalm. Because how could we talk about God's being with the generation of the righteous without thinking of that ultimate revelation of God with us as God the Son takes on human flesh? In the miracle of the incarnation, Jesus becomes the only exception to the words, there is no one who does good, not even one. Uh, Listen instead to the words that are spoken at his baptism. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. These words couldn't have been spoken about any other human being until right now, as the Son of God appears in human flesh. Only about Jesus can we say that this is true. Jesus breaks the curse that Adam has placed upon us by becoming a second Adam, uh, the second man who succeeds where the first had failed by living a perfect, sinless life. What a radical thing it is isn't it? That God himself should become human and die on a cross. Why do we need such a radical salvation? Uh, Why is it necessary? It's because our sin is that deep. And yet Jesus can deal with sin that deep because he's entered into the depths of human temptation. Jesus has walked the road of trial and hardship, obeying where we disobeyed. Yet he was the one who paid the penalty not us. He carried our sins to the cross. Your sin, your worst sin, your darkest sin, and he triumphed over it there. His blood is enough to cleanse even the darkness of our sinful hearts. And in his resurrection, Jesus becomes the first fruits of a new creation. He becomes the head of a new people, no longer children of Adam, doomed to death, but now receiving adoption as children of God. Though we still struggle with our sinful nature, it is no longer what defines us. Not because we are powerful enough to defeat it in ourselves, but because there is another principle at work within us, the Spirit of God. Through Jesus, we are given the gift of God himself poured out in our hearts so that we're not alone in our struggle with sin. We have the Holy Spirit working in us, and his work cannot ultimately fail. In Jesus, we have received new life. 
We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but now the life of Jesus is worked into us by His Spirit. You know, I can't think of a better illustration of this dynamic than the story of Zacchaeus. Children, do you know the story of Zacchaeus? Right? If there's one thing you remember about Zacchaeus, what is it? It's that he's short, right? You know, maybe you sang the song, Zacchaeus was a wee, wee, wee man, you know. Um, maybe not. I, I, I sang that song when I was a child, for sure. For sure. Um, what else is true about Zacchaeus, though, if you've read the biblical story? It's that he's a sinner, right? He's a tax collector. How does he make his living? Uh, he oppressively extorts money out of people. You know, tax collection was not a pretty business in the Roman Empire. Um, not only that, he's actually really good at it. He's rich. He's got a lot of money out of doing that. In other words, he hardly seems like a candidate for God's kingdom. I mean, Jesus himself has said, right, that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But this Zacchaeus, he wants to see who Jesus is. And he, can't, he won't let his shortness or the crowds around him stop him from getting a glimpse. And so he climbs up in a tree to get a look. Uh, and then just imagine it. When Jesus gets to that place, he stops and he looks at Zacchaeus for no apparent reason and says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he goes to Zacchaeus' house. And Zacchaeus, he's just overjoyed that Jesus would come and have fellowship with him. And so he, he's so instantly changed by Jesus' unexpected love that he promises to repay fourfold what he's stolen and to give half of what he owns to the poor. But, but don't, don't be impressed. Don't be so impressed with what Zacchaeus does that you miss what Jesus does here. He hones in on this lost sinner and says to him, I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to have fellowship with you. And this is what Jesus says to him after Zacchaeus makes his promise. He says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Our psalm says that we're all lost in Adam. None of us is wise enough to know to seek after God. But in Jesus, we see God coming to seek after us. Get a good look at your Savior in this passage today, at the love he shows in seeking after Zacchaeus. He has come to seek precisely those who are lost. He shows his love to you too today. He seeks after you, and all the depravity in your heart cannot defeat that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, have been confronted this morning with the truth about who we are, the darkness that's in our hearts, the sin that is there by nature and clings so closely to us. And that's a difficult truth, but we ask that by your Spirit you would give us faith and you would give us eyes that can see as you see, eyes that can understand how far we fall short of the blessed holiness that you call us to. And we ask you would give us eyes that can see Christ and what he's done for us. Eyes that see your great mercy that is so much greater than all our sin. That can see uh, what Jesus has done for us on the cross and the meaning of his resurrection in which we're given life. And we ask that you would help this truth to work into our hearts that 
we would see our sin more clearly, but even more brightly than that, we would see the light of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.